0: you're listening to the revolution church podcast to learn more including our gathering times in crossville tennessee visit us at crossville all right rev church everybody say go vols! go vols we eked it out yesterday we barely made it so good to see everybody this weekend hey uh we got a lot to go over today, so we're going to go like straight into the scripture. Don't have a big preface today to go over. We're going to be in Acts chapter twenty-one. We're going to look at verses one through seventeen. Uh, if you're new to Revolution, you're joining us online. We're in, I believe, the thirtieth week of our series through the book of Acts. That's what we like to do: is uh, preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And here at the beginning, I'm going to tell you why. So let's go to Acts chapter twenty-one. Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to stop real quick, explain some things along the way, exposit this scripture, and uh, man, i tell you, today's scripture is so theologically rich. I mean, if you don't walk away with something today, it's because you're like our boy that we talked about last week that fell asleep. Y'all know what I'm saying? And so uh, look at your neighbor and say, wake up, baby, come on. (laughs) Wake up, baby, that's weird. Acts 21, let's look at verse 1. I'm going to stop about seven words in. Paul says, or Luke says in writing this, after we, again, this is a we, it's changed from uh, more of a uh, historical book to now it reads like a diary, after we had torn ourselves away from them. Now, what is Luke talking about? Well, he's talking about what took place between the passage of Scripture we looked at last week, where the kid fell out of the window and died, and Paul raised him from the dead, and chapter 21, where Paul and his companions connect with the elders from the church in Ephesus, and Paul gives them a final farewell address, I guess if you will, Uh, a last sermon where he gives some instruction and some insights to the elders at the church of Ephesus. Uh, Some of the highlights from this is one thing he mentions is he warns them about wolves in the church. If you remember back in week number five or six, I believe it was, we did a whole sermon talking about wolves in the church and that every single church has them because where you have sheep, there's going to be wolves, there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be all those things. So so he warns them. He says, there's going to be some wolves in your midst, and you may even like them, and you may even want to keep them around, but you better shoot them, and you better make sure that they are dead when you shoot them. Amen, Rev. Church? And so secondly, he tells them, and I just thought this was neat because... If you want to know why we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, uh, this is one of the reasons. Paul uh, tells the elders of uh, Ephesus, I taught you guys the full counsel of God's Word. And I love that he uses the word full counsel because what he's saying is we didn't skip anything. See, here's the reality with preachers and teachers of God's Word. Every single one of us has pet subjects that we like to preach on more than others. Uh, There are certain things that we want to spend the most amount of time on, whether uh, it's culturally something, politics, this, that. We want to spend time on it. Well, what we like to do at this church is we like to preach the full counsel of God's Word. This is why we like to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, because it keeps us from abusing those pet subjects, uh, and it causes us to end up on subjects or passages of Scripture that we would otherwise avoid, because they're too difficult. that make sense to everybody say amen okay and then finally he tells them hey he wants to make sure that they know like I wasn't I didn't stay with you for two years in the city of Ephesus because I wanted to make money so he makes that very clear I'm not one of these guys that's just looking to make money at the end of this speech in chapter 20 right before uh, we get to verse 1 uh, it becomes very clear that Paul is letting them know I'm never going to see you again And the elders in Ephesus are distraught as a result of this because Paul, it becomes very clear, Paul knows, like, hey, he thinks, I'm going to my death right now. I'm going to end up dying at some point. And so the elders are upset. And that's why in verse one, it uses the strong language of after we had torn ourselves away from them. In other words, the word picture is Paul has his arm tied with a rope and they won't let go of it. And he has to fanugle his way out of the rope to get away from them because They did not want him to go as he was traveling to Jerusalem. And you're going to see that theme with two other groups of people today, okay, where they do not want him to go to Jerusalem. So after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. So stop right here. Paul ends up in a city that we haven't heard anything about up to this point, the city of Tyre. Uh, Just for reference, I've told you guys that the book of Acts encompasses 30 years roughly of the early church's history. Well, this particular situation takes place roughly about 24 years after Pentecost. And why that's so cool is because we have no record of church planning in the book of Acts in the city of Tyre, no record of evangelism that took place in the city of Tyre. It's been speculated because on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from all over the region, all over the known world that had come there, and they got saved. And so the speculation is somebody got saved on the day of Pentecost, went back home to Tyre, started the church and evangelized the people. But what's so encouraging about this, notice that, The book of Acts is not a total comprehensive history of the early church. It really just gives us some highlights and a small picture of what the church did. But outside of the book of Acts, there was a huge work that happened outside the boundaries of this book, I guess, if you will, because in Tyre, we don't even know the real story. When he gets to Tyre, I want you to notice the first thing that is his priority. The very first thing Paul does is he says, we sought out the disciples. They're only going to be in Tyre for seven days, but the first thing Paul does is he says, I got to find some brothers and sisters in Christ. I got to go find a church church. And I got to go find some Christians that I can hang around with that will support us, that will be there for us, and that will hold us accountable. The lesson is this if you go to a new city or move to a new town, on your priorities is not to wait a year, not to get settled in after two years, it's to immediately find a group of believers that you can do life with. Find a church. If you're here this weekend at Revolution Church and you're church hopping, quit church hopping, okay? This ain't Baskin Robbins with 31 Flavors or whatever it was back then. You need to find a group of people that you can do life with, that'll hold your arms up for you, that'll bear your burdens for you, that will hold you accountable. Find a church. If you're in the process of leaving a church... You don't put it off as quickly as you can. You find a church to be a part of so that you can be a part of, you know, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the large group gatherings where we worship together, we study God's Word together, we encourage each other like we're doing right now. And also, you need to... Do what they did all through the book of Acts. You need, for lack of a better way of putting it, you need like a small group to be a part of. A group of people that can pray for you, that you can talk to, that you can counsel with, and different things like that. But notice, the first thing Paul does is, when he gets to Tyre, he sought out the disciples. You see this theme all through the book of Acts. Um, I heard a story about a Texas billionaire whose daughter was growing up, and he was a very protective father, and uh, he really didn't want her to date anybody, and so he said, I know what I'll do. I'll take this thing by the horns, and and I'll be the one to decide who's going to ask my daughter out, and who's going to court my daughter, so he put an ad in the paper that said, if you're interested in dating, you know, courting my daughter, and put his name in there, and everybody knew who he was, be at my house and my grounds this Saturday, Well, hundreds of men show up, right? Because they're like, man, I wanna date this guy's daughter because he's a billionaire and, and he takes all these men when they show up and he gives them a tour of his property and he's got his own golf course and he's got acres of land and he's got a lake and he's got a mansion here and a mansion there and this is my guest mansion and he gets to a place on the property where there's a giant Olympic-sized pool and the men are just blown away at this point. They're looking and they're look at this pool. But upon further inspection, the men realize this pool is full of alligators. Well, the billionaire goes on the other side of the pool. He's on this side. The men are on this side, and he yells to all the men and says, "Anyone that wants to date my daughter has to jump in this pool and cross it. And if you get to the other side, to me." I will give you the opportunity to ask my daughter out and court my daughter. Well, immediately, of course, this better have a good punchline, right? That's a long story. Immediately, hundreds of the guys walk away. They're like, I'm not doing that. This guy's crazy. The ones that are left are thinking to themselves, well, this got to be a joke. Like, he can't be serious. Well, the Texas billionaire starts to realize nobody's going to jump in. So he starts to walk off, but he hears a splash. One guy jumps in. He feverishly runs across the pool as quick as he can, getting away from the alligators, gets to the other side without being harmed and gets out. And the Texas billionaire is like, my goodness, I can't believe you did that. Man, now you're going to get to date my daughter and court my daughter, and you're probably going to be the one that marries her one day. And you're going to get all this. You're going to get the mansions and the houses and, and the acres of land and all my money. You'll, you'll inherit every bit of this. Young man, I've just got to know, what do you have to say for yourself? What's your name? Who are you? The young man catches his breath and says, hold on just a second. Before I tell you who I am and what I have to say, I want to know who pushed me in. <laughs> right? Paul goes and looks <clears throat> for a church because he needs people that are going to push him in so that he can get to the other side of the pool and gain the rewards. Does everybody get it? Say amen. That's what the church is for. It's to hold each other accountable, to encourage each other, and to push each other. Now, interestingly enough, this next part of this verse, uh, verse number four that I'm going to read to you, the B part of this verse, brings out really the biggest point of tension in Acts chapter 21 in this early passage of Scripture in Acts 21. Uh, this is a point that's been debated for centuries. Uh, I'm going to tell you where I land on it. And the the, the Christians in Tyre and the Christians, as you're going to see later, they're not really pushing Paul on to gain the reward. So watch what happens. He's in Tyre. He finds believers. He stays with them for seven days. And then the Scripture says this, and it's kind of confusing, so I'm going to try to explain it. Through the Spirit, they, they being the Christians in Tyre, urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, the divide in this passage is this. Some would say that Paul is completely out of the will of God trying to go to Jerusalem. Because as you're going to see, he gets all kinds of information about what's going to happen to him when he gets there. Others would say Paul is pressing forward and he is in the will of God despite the warnings that he is going to get. Was the Holy Spirit warning Paul and telling him not to go to Jerusalem, which was where his ultimate destination was, essentially? I believe, and you're going to see this come out later as we explain more of this passage and and a little bit of chapter 20, that Paul was absolutely in the will of God in going to Jerusalem. I believe that if you, make a long story short, if you study the context and the Greek of this particular passage where it says through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, I believe that the Spirit told these Christians the, the hardships that Paul was going to face, but I don't think anywhere we could say that the Spirit absolutely told them to tell Paul not to go, in other words. I guess what I'm saying is God was preparing Paul for what he would face in Jerusalem, not trying to prevent Paul from going, if that makes sense. Now this brings out a real truth that we have to be very careful of in ourselves and we also have to be very careful of in other people and that truth is these people here put their own spin on something that God had told them. And they look at Paul and say, don't go. You're going to see this in a minute too because when we read verses 11 and 12, there's a prophet that comes and prophesies. And he tells Paul what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, but he never prophesies that God told him not to go. But the people in verses 11 and 12, they add a human word of application to a true word of prophecy. In other words, they put their own spin on something that God said. You need to be very careful to not put your own spin, I mean, y'all know, this is something we all do, this is what we see all the time, put your own spin on something that God says, either through his word, or through a word of prophecy, or whatever, you need to be very careful, because notice, even the most well-intended people can add their own interpretation to something God says, everybody with me, say, I am, I used to love to go up to Plateau Truck and Tractor right up here on Genesis Road. It's about a half mile away. My dad worked there for about 15 years. And uh, for a long time, there was about five or 10 old men uh, that were way more seasoned in life, had a lot of wisdom that would hang out at the tractor shop and sit and rock in rocking chairs and And talk, and whenever I'd have time, I'd go up there and just hang out with them because I loved listening to them and hearing their take. And they'd talk about everything from politics to cultural things to tractors to to church to everything you can imagine. And I can remember one day, this guy that I really respect, I still talk to him today. Uh, I was telling him about something that was going on in my life, uh, something that may have been going on with the church. But I remember him saying something along the lines of this, Josh, be really careful. Because the Lord gets blamed for a lot of things he has nothing to do with. You ever notice that? God gets blamed for a lot of things. In other words, people take something God says and interpret it their own way, and when it goes bad or it doesn't go the way they want, they blame God for it. This also shows us a a real thing about ourselves. Like, When you read the Bible, it's like a mirror, right? That's the way we're supposed to read it. Don't look at it just as a window that you judge others through. Look at it as a mirror where you can see yourself. But notice, the Christians in Tyre are real quick to know what God's will is for Paul's life. And we're real quick to know what God's will is for everybody else's life but ours. You ever notice that? Nobody's going to say, amen, I got you. Yeah, this is the second service. Y'all planned on being here. You got a plan for the rest of your day. You're the control freaks. In other words, I got you. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean? I know what everybody else is supposed to do. Third service, I'll get some amens for that because they believe it or not, third service is when we get the most people that get here late because they're barely making it. They got kids and everything. They'll be going amen. Wish people would quit trying to tell me how to do it. I don't know. <laughs> so true. We're quick to know what God's will is for someone else. Does God have everybody's phone number in here? Can He speak to people? Yeah. He doesn't always have to speak through you, prophet or prophetess, so-called prophet or prophetess. More on that later because y'all love that point. I'll save it for later, okay? So here God is giving Paul warnings not prohibitions to go to Jerusalem. He, as one theologian puts it, he puts obstacles in Paul's way, but not barriers to not go. We know that Paul has already traveled twice to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 11, he takes a famine offering to Jerusalem. He's taking another famine offering right here that's part of his purpose for going. Acts chapter 15, he goes to the Jerusalem council where they have this big business-like meeting uh, deciding whether or not you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they're like, no, you don't have to be circumcised. And so God is telling Paul, as you're going to see, not just here, but as we read through the rest of this passage, he's telling Paul, get ready for what's coming, not don't go because of what's coming. Let's continue in verse 5. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And There on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at, this is a tough city name to say, so I'm going to call it this because it's funny, Petalama. You ever Petalama? Anybody in here ever Petalama? Look you your and say, Petalama, I don't know, you know. That's what I'll call it. Petalama, okay, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Everybody remember Philip? Acts chapter six, he's one of the seven. That's what it's referring to here. The OG deacons that were appointed in Acts chapter seven to run the food pantry. Uh, we get to chapter eight. Philip has been uh, really promoted to a missionary and then promoted to an evangelist. It's interesting. Philip is the only person in the New Testament that's referred to as an evangelist. Uh, you know, last week we talked about uh, names of people and what they mean and. Philip, I don't, I don't think there's anything this means, but it means lover of horses, okay? So it's kind of weird. It doesn't really mean anything, but verse 9. So he's staying at Philip's house. It tells us in verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, when you think of Paul's belt, don't think a leather strap like we use today with a buckle on it. Think more like a very long sash. That's what they wore back in the day. They would tie it around their waist multiple times, so it's like a really long piece of cloth. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. This is very Old Testament-esque, isn't it? In the Old Testament. Uh, whenever a prophet would have a, a message from God, many times they would act it out in some very unusual way, which is the same thing that Agabus does here. And this shows us that God has His own way in speaking to people, His own patterns in speaking to people, and in His own will will speak to people. I couldn't help but think like, Why did it tell us, the original translation tells us that Philip had uh, four daughters that were virgins. Essentially, they weren't married is what what it was saying. And they had the gift of prophecy. And so the first thing I thought was, why didn't he just have one of the people in-house that were local bring this word of prophecy to Paul? But he brings somebody from out of town. He brings this man named Agabus to bring this word to Paul. Now, as we read through this, one of the largest questions that you just have to ask when you read verses 1 through 17 in Acts 21 is, how did Paul know that it was the will of God to continue on to Jerusalem? How did he know? And attached to that is the question that we would ask of ourselves, how do we as New Testament believers know what God's will is for our life? You ever ask that question? Anybody in here ever been making a decision in your life and been like, "Man, I just I'm not sure how I'm supposed to do this." I don't know about you, but I read some of the stories in Scripture and think to myself, "Man, I wish God spoke to me like He spoke to Agabus or spoke to Paul through Agabus. I wish it was kind of Old Testament like, where He like made a fleece wet on the ground and I would know yes or no whether I'm supposed to do this or do that." But I'm here to tell you really what the Old Testament shows us when God spoke like that over and over in such clear ways is we'd still be disobedient. We'd still, like, no matter how clear God was with it, we would still struggle with listening to what he says. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. God used the Old Covenant to prove that hearing the Word of God isn't our primary problem. Heeding the Word of God is our constant challenge. How do you know God's will for your life? I want to give you three things that will help you, three things that you need to remember when figuring out God's will for your life. Number one, remember that God has wisdom principles in the Bible. Now, I say that because everybody in here, you probably know, when it comes to morality, the Bible's very clear. Like it's black and white stuff when it's moral issues, right? This is why we believe in the Ten Commandments, even though it's Old Testament, Uh, That sounded weird. Testament. Okay, Testament uh, because they're morality-based. You know, the questions like, should I lie? No. Uh, Should I uh, steal? No. Should I commit adultery on my wife? No. Uh, Should you have premarital sex? No. Should you do those types of things? Morality issues are black and white in Scripture, but what about things that aren't morality-based? This is where it gets hard. What am I supposed to do with my money? Am I supposed to take this job or not? How do I deal with this relationship? Well, those areas we tend to think of more as gray areas. And you need to remember that God has wisdom principles. God has something in Scripture known as wisdom. And on the opposite end of that is foolishness. And you can choose to live your life in a wise way, which is a way where you skillfully, Honor God with your life, which results in being full of joy. Or you can choose to live your life in a foolish way. Living your life in a foolish way is not necessarily sinful. Is everybody with me? Shake your head like this. It's not necessarily sinful to do foolish things. It's just stupid to do (laughs) foolish things. And so I would encourage you, if you're at a place right now, or you will be in the future, I promise, where it's kind of like one of those questions of, man, do I move to this city? How do, I, do I go to this church? What do I do? Read the wisdom principles that are all through Scripture. It will help guide you, if that makes sense. Number two, remember this. And you're going to see this really play out in the coming Scriptures. Don't base God's will for your life off what other people think or say. Listen to me. Should you seek counsel? Absolutely you should. Man, when you're making a decision in your life, go find a brother or sister that loves Jesus, several of them, and loves you, has has more, more, more seasoned in life. You know, they got less tread on the tires, like I said last week, than you do. And they've been through some stuff and they can look at you and they can say, I made that mistake, don't do this. Or hey, do this because I did this or whatever. You should absolutely seek out that wisdom. But ultimately, notice the pattern here. God is leading Paul to go to Jerusalem, and he has to follow God. And he can't base his life and his God's will for his life off of what other people think or say. This is really, for me, the only example. And I just talk about me because I know me best, and this is probably the greatest example in my life. So I'm not trying to make this about me, but I can remember when Brooke and I decided to start Revolution Church, which the church is about nine We decided probably 12 years ago, 11 years ago, we knew God was calling us to plant a church. And when we made the decision and said, we're going to plant a church in the big city of Crossville, Tennessee, y'all. I'm not kidding when I say this, and I'm not exaggerating. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. We did not have one person when we initially made that decision that supported it. Nobody. Not one mentor said, I can remember Now, since then, we've had people like, almost immediately along the way, God started sending people that had the vision, and he started, you know, more and more people have got on board, okay? So it wasn't long before people got on board with it, but like, I can remember for about a month, man, nobody was with us. One of my my main mentors, somebody that I love very much, to this day, one of my closest ones, looked at me and said, if you start a church in Crossville, Tennessee, you'll be lucky if you get 100 people. You do not need to start one there. You can't base your life off of what other people say or think. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. I want to point this out too. Paul is really the outlier in the sense that God actually is telling him some of the things that are coming. God usually doesn't tell us what's coming when we're going to follow his will and walk in faith. You know why? Because if God told you what was coming, you wouldn't do what he tells you to do. Anybody feel me? Hey, if I knew what was coming when we started this church, we never would have started this church, ever. If I knew how I was going to get stabbed in the back and this, and this was going to happen and this was going to happen, and so-and-so is going to get mad and blah, 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 blah. If I knew what was going to happen over the next two years, y'all, I'd probably quit today. You know what I'm saying? I'm just being honest. So, so God is not a spotlight to our feet. He is a lamp unto our feet. You can see a couple of steps ahead, but you can't see miles down the road. And he does that on purpose because most of us, We couldn't handle it. We'd give up. Make sense to everybody? Number three, remember this. Instead of standing before us to bark orders, the Holy Spirit now lives within us to transform our minds. So all through the book of Acts, you know it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, and we've told you guys since the beginning of this book really what it should be referred to as is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because you see over and over, they were full of the Spirit, which is the same as walking in the Spirit. Holy Spirit let them do that. What does that mean? What that means is when you get saved, you start to walk in the Spirit. And as you walk in the Spirit, something called sanctification takes place where you become more like Jesus and you start to have what's referred to in the New Testament as the mind of Christ. And as you do that, your old, selfish, foolish manner of life fades away and you'll begin to cherish what God cherishes, make decisions based on His values, And really start to view life from an eternal perspective. I hope this helps. I really hope this helps. So now it's not so much that we lay a fleece on the ground and it's wet or it's not wet. That's just the best example I can think of that everybody knows about. Now you hear Christians say things like, you ever heard somebody say this? Man, I just don't have a peace about that. You ever heard that before? That's the Holy Spirit. Ah, You know what? I have a peace about this. I think God's leading me to do this. I've prayed, I've studied, I've seek counsel, but ultimately I know God's leading me to do this. So now we have the ability to have our minds transformed to become more like Jesus so that we, we think like Him, if that makes sense. So remember that. He doesn't just bark orders. Now the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, lives within us and we can walk in the Spirit and listen to Him. I hope that helps. Does that help everybody say amen? Okay, good. Y'all may be lying to me, but I know it's kind of broad, but (laughs) tough. Let's continue in verse 12. When we, once again, uh, Luke is here. This isn't written like a history book. It's written like a diary now because Luke is in the picture. He's actually Paul's constant companion. We pointed that out last week. When they heard, when we heard what Agabus had said about Paul, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful words. Um, I have loved cage fighting for the last 20 years. Anybody in here like cage fighting? UFC kind of fighting and stuff like that? I love it. Yeah, it's brutal and it's awful, but it's awesome, you know, and... uh One of my favorite fighters is a guy named Israel Anasanja, and when Israel Anasanja took his first title fight, he fought a guy named Kelvin Gasolam, and in this fight, it was five rounds long, and for the first four rounds, uh, they just beat the snot out of each other. I mean, it was really even, and it came down to the fifth round. And so they're going into the fifth round, and whoever wins this round is going to win the title. And uh, Israel and Asenja was interviewed after the fight, and he said, you know, when I went into that fifth round, like, I, I was ready to put it all on the line. Like, if I died in that round, I was willing to die. Well, he goes into that round, and he wins the round and ends up winning the title, and is one of the best champions the UFC has ever had. What's interesting, though, and I love this clip, is that the cameras actually caught him speaking to himself right before the fifth round when the bell rang and they went in. This is what it looked like on camera. If you guys could play that clip for me and just show that clip real quick. It's about 10 seconds But Look what he says. I have no problem. I'm prepared to die. He's just saying over and over to himself, I'm prepared to die for this. You ever had something in your life that you said that about? You ever had something in your life that you thought to yourself, I'll give everything for this. Paul did. Something greater than a championship belt. Paul says, I'm I'm ready to die for the will of God. I'm ready to. I'm ready to put everything on the line for Christ. He echoes this in chapter 20, back in chapter 20, when he said this in part of his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, when he said, and now, compelled by the Spirit, this is why I believe Paul was in the will of God, because if you read this verses by the Spirit, the context here suggests that the Holy Spirit was leading Paul to go to Jerusalem. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He's all in. Paul's all in. No wiggle room. It's crazy... And this is one of those hard, hard, hard passages of Scripture. It's crazy when you look at the Americanized version of Christianity in Crossville, Tennessee in 2022, versus what we see in this passage. It's unbelievable to look at the differences of Paul saying, I am willing to give everything to God everything to God Paul was determined and would not be deterred in his mind its obedience above all even my physical safety he's got a commitment to God's will and a trust in God that he's going to have him no matter what my question for us this weekend is do we have the same attitude do we have the same attitude I think I'm uniquely qualified to speak on this because I'm the pastor of a church, but I look at the church in America and, and, and I see many of us, me included, struggling not with the attitude of, I'll die for this thing, but more with a consumerism mindset of what does the church have to offer me? What's Jesus going to do for me? How's he going to help me? I was just thinking about church attendance and this isn't meant to make you feel bad and but you know we, we've got this idea that I'll go to church as long as the air conditioning in my car is working I'll go to church as long as I'm not busy I'll go to church as long as it's not raining I'll, I'll go to church as long as I'm not sleepy I'll go to church as long as I don't have travel ball with the kids that weekend stupid man ain't going to help them a bit when later in life and their relationship with Jesus. It's not sinful, but it just kills me. You take them to travel ball for 18 years, <laughs> and I'm not being mean. This is totally, I didn't say this in the first service, probably won't say it in the next, but then, uh, I'm not trying to be mean, but then you show up at my office trying to figure out what to do because they've lost their friggin' minds when they're in their mid-20s. I wonder why parents just let it be a warning in here you got a huge responsibility raising those kids I'll I'll go to church as long as the kids get along on Sunday morning what morning do you think they're not going to get along y'all what morning do you think you're going to fight with your wife I'll get along and I know y'all say this one all the time as long as Josh is preaching you know I'll I'll, I'll go to church as long as Josh is preaching y'all don't ever say I think I messed that line up but y'all don't ever say that right For many people, by the time they run what God wants them to do through their as long as filter, they rarely do anything for God. You know? This brings out something that we have got to wrap our mind around, Rev. Church, and that is, you can be in the will of God and still suffer. You see this? Paul's in the will of God, and he's walking into suffering. Paul's friends are looking at him, and what they're essentially saying is surely God doesn't want you to go through something hard. Surely God doesn't want you to suffer. Surely, H- how do we hear it today? God wants you to be happy and he wants you to be prosperous. Now, to Paul, this probably felt like complete betrayal. I, I can't imagine how isolated. Paul felt because these are the very people who should have appreciated better than anyone why he had to go to Jerusalem. One theologian says, just like Jesus, Paul walked his path without his companions understanding his purpose. He talked about this passage of Scripture. Listen, God's not all about you being happy. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Amen. Attendance is going to go down next week, I know. But we're preaching the full counsel of God here, okay? I don't know where this idea of happy came from. I think it was from the book of Second But y'all got that. Good. God is more concerned with you being holy and in His will. And then this funny thing happens when you strive to be holy and obedient to God then you're full of joy, even in the midst of suffering. The Bible makes this very very clear. You can be in the will of God and suffer. Rev. Church, you can be in the will of God, and I know this isn't what TV preachers tell you, and I know this isn't what a lot of big churches tell you. They want you to think otherwise. You're never going to get sick, and everything's going to be good, and if you give us some money, God's going to pay it back a million times. Okay, no, you you can be in the will of God and your car can still break down. Y'all know that? You can be in the will of God and you can be broke. You can be in the will of God and you can get sick. Hey, y'all, here's what this passage is telling us. You can be in the will of God and you can pay the ultimate price. You could die. You absolutely could die. Well, now that I've pumped y'all up and you're so encouraged, let's continue and let's close this out. Amazing. Paul here, you know, th- these people have been behind him so much, and here they turn on him. They, 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 they turn on him, and Paul is, as one theologian puts it, Paul here in this passage, more than any other, is the misunderstood missionary. So let me just tell you listen, if you're going to do anything for God, uh, we've unpacked this so many different ways in the book of Acts, you're going to be criticized, you're going to be misunderstood and you are going to be opposed. And in this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice, it's not the wolves opposing Paul, it's the Paul people loves the most. You're you're called to be a pastor. Mommy and daddy may not like that in 2022. You're called to do something for God. Maybe even the people that are closest to you and love you the most are going to be the ones that misunderstand and criticize you and oppose you. Okay, let's get happy now. Is everybody good? Say amen. I got a mustache. Is that funny enough for y'all? I don't know. You know, that's why. Verse 14. My wife says I can't pull the mustache off. I don't know. So, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. Now, here's one more point. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but a great concept for the control freaks in here. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Hey, listen, listen. When someone doesn't do what you think they should do because you know what God's will is for their life, right? Here's a great picture of what you need to do. Have faith, trust God, pray for His will. Everybody with me? Your kids have lost their minds. You took them to, to travel ball, and now they're lost, and they're in their mid-20s, and they're losing their minds. Well, at some point, Mom and Dad, you got to let them go. And at some point, you got to trust God with them. And at some point, you got to say, I'm going to let them make their mistakes and I'm going to pray for God's will in their life because I know His sovereignty is over all things. Does that make sense to everybody? When He would not be dissuaded, He gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nathan, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, The brothers and sisters received us warmly. I'll close with this. I heard a story that a guy was telling uh, when he was giving a speech, watched it online, and he talked about how one time he was flying on a plane across the country, and uh, the plane he was on hit some heavy, heavy turbulence, like turbulence like he had never experienced before. Uh, He said, Man, I fly all the time, but we hit this turbulence, and the plane was Going up and down, and people were screaming, and people thought we were going down, and it was really—I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of planes that have really bad turbulence, like on social media and stuff. But it can get pretty intense. And uh, he said, I, "I fly all the time, and I've never experienced this. I mean, I was worried. People were throwing up because they were sick, and—and and he said it was so crazy because in the middle of all this turbulence, that went on for quite a while. You know, thirty minutes to an hour." He looked in the seat next to him, and there was a little girl that was about 8 to 10 years old that sat there completely calm the whole time, completely calm, didn't, 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 didn't get excited, didn't freak out. Kids are crying. Kids are losing their minds. Adults are crying and losing their minds. And this little girl, I think he said she had a coloring book or an iPad. I don't know. So that's generational, right? Like if you're old in here, she had a coloring book. If you're young in here, she had an iPad, okay? And so, um, <clears throat> so she's just sitting there chilling the whole time. And he said when they landed and got off the plane, he walked off the plane and the girl was just standing at the entrance to the plane, just standing there with her suitcase. And he said, man, I had to go up to her and ask her. And so he did. He went up and said, hey, h- how did you stay so calm on the plane? Like, what what, what did you do? do you, you fly a lot or are you drugged up? Like, what's going on here? Like, how did you stay so calm when everybody else was freaking out? And he said, the little girl said to him, Well, my dad's the pilot, and we were going home. I couldn't wait to get home, and that's all I was thinking about. This is what's going on with Paul. This is exactly what's going on with Paul. How did Paul have so much peace? Hey, dad's the pilot. I trust him. Even if I die, I'm going home. I'm going home. He's not focused on things in this earth. He's focused on things above. Paul understands that his citizenship is not on earth. His citizenship is where, Rev. Church? Heaven. And that's how he has peace. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. I thank you for every single person that is here. Most of all, God, we thank you for your word that leads us and guides us. Uh, Lord, protect this church from the wolves that are in it. Protect the sheep from the wolves that are in it. God, I pray that we continue to unpack the entire counsel of God and don't become a church that gets stuck on certain subjects. Don't become a political church or, a, or a, a, I don't know, a pep rally church or whatever, but we continue to even look at these hard passages of Scripture. I pray for the people that are under the sound of my voice that are trying to figure out your will in some area and they're confused and they don't know what to do. I pray that they would be full of the Spirit and submit to your Spirit and walk in the Spirit and that you would transform their mind and give them the mind of Christ so they know exactly what it is you're leading them to do. Give them a peace, God. I pray for those in here that are going against your morality commandments. I'm sure there's people in here under the sound of my voice that are having sex right now and they're not married. Uh, there's people in here that have a stronghold of lying in their lives that they need to be set free of. And God, I just, I just pray for those that are, that are struggling in these areas. God, most of all, I pray that we would be a people that don't follow a Jesus that we've made out to look like us. An Americanized version with the American dream sprinkled in, but a biblical version. I pray for us, God, that we are a people that offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Savior that paid a high price for us. Grace was not cheap. So the least we can do is be willing to die for you. I pray, God, that we lay our lives on the line for you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Hey, love you guys. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.